The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. Welcome to the podcast series, The Gospel of Basic Truth. We're looking in Scripture at places to find the gospel in addition to John 3.16. And our purpose is to encourage you in your faith and to give you some additional tools as you witness to your family and friends. We're going to look at the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. There are a couple of books in Scripture that are a special (laughs) challenge or difficulty for us to read. Certainly, Leviticus in the Old Testament presents a challenge because it's written for the Levites and for the priests and how to do the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of the things they're supposed to do. Obviously, we don't have that today. Um, So it's a bit of a challenge there. Likewise, in the New Testament, uh, the letter to the Hebrews presents some difficulty because it focuses so much on the Old Testament sacrificial system. But we go in with this, what Scripture tells us. The Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed, that is, inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And certainly today, as we go through Hebrews, again, we will have some things to talk about, uh, some challenges, but there is much here to to help us to understand uh, the gospel. Hebrews was written by a Jewish person who was a Christian, so it was a saved saved person, so a Jewish Christian, and he's writing to other saved Jewish believers— He writes again in Greek, and so clearly this is a letter that's addressed to those Christian Jews who are living outside of Israel. Again, the term is the Jewish diaspora. He's writing to them because they are undergoing a period of persecution, and they are being tempted to leave Christianity, leave the church, and go back to Judaism. And he's writing to tell them, don't do it. Not only does this man who who is writing the letter understand the Old Testament sacrificial system very well, and of course, Christian theology, he's got that down, but he also writes the best grammatically correct Greek in all of the New Testament. Now, Paul writes very, very well. Luke writes probably even better, but whoever wrote Hebrews, really the scholars say writes the best of of all the Greek. So obviously a very educated man. Now, early on in the church, it was thought that perhaps Barnabas, now Barnabas was a leader in the church, uh, and at some point he got Saul of Tarsus, took him to Antioch, and of course Saul became Paul and the two of them were sent off onto the first missionary journey of Paul's. Um, we do know, again, that Barnabas apparently was, was wealthy. He owned land in Cyprus, 
um, his relative, either sister or niece, was the mother of John Mark, and it's clear that she had a very large house in Jerusalem with servants. So you know, it's possible that uh, Barnabas, uh, you know, his family had the, the, the money to give him an education to do this. Uh, someone else that has been suggested, uh, you know, in recent years is Apollos. Apollos was um, an evangelist. Uh, Paul mentions him several times in his letters. Uh, Apollos was uh, quite a teacher and a skilled orator. He could, he could speak, so perhaps he could also write as well. We don't know. The writer of Hebrews is telling the Jewish Christians, I, I, I know that you're under persecution, but do not go back. He speaks about the temple and the sacrificial system, the various sacrifices, as he's writing in the present tense. So that indicates to scholars that this book was written before 70 AD. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, so it would seem this would be before the destruction of the temple. It also seems that historically we can say that there was a pretty wide persecution of the church under the emperor Nero, and we know that was in the 60 AD area, 60s. So again, it looks like this was written uh, during that time and urging the Jewish Christians not to turn back. What the writer does is he takes the Old Testament sacrificial system, all the, the offerings, and he compares them. So this is the Old Covenant that comes to the Jews through the Law of Moses, first five books. And he compares that to the New Covenant. And kind of one for one, the high priest, the sacrifice, what it means, you know, how good a sacrifice it was, to show them that what they had in Christ as saved people was much better than they ever had in, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Covenant. There are two um, challenges that I, I want to kind of deal with here first. And the original recipients of this letter would have known all about these sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament because they were still being done. Uh, and they had come out of that system. So for the recipients, they go from what they knew to what they didn't maybe know as good as they should. So they've only got to make one leap of logic, one leap of understanding. The challenge for us is that we have to make two leaps. Someone has to sit down and explain to us what all of this, you know, blood and cutting animals up, what, what does that have to do with anything? And then once we get a basic understanding, and that takes a bit of a leap, then we go on to the point that the new covenant is even better. That we can do. I just point it out to you, if you've never sat down and read Hebrews before, um, it might be difficult. So, you know, getting a study book or listening to a teacher or preacher to give you the big picture, it could be helpful. Our first church, as I've mentioned before, um, the pastor that was there ended up being there for 38 years. And I got to know two of his adult children and there was a funny little joke in their family that Hebrews was the forbidden book. And now, the pastor never said that, but, you know, the adult children, that, 
that's what they refer to it as, the forbidden book. And they called it the forbidden book is because Father never preached out of it. In 38 years, he preached out of every other book in the Bible, but not that one. I think the challenge of figuring out what the Old Testament sacrificial system all about is a reason maybe not to spend a lot of time in Hebrews. But it's a second challenge uh, that, that really gets people. So the writer is using examples uh, that are familiar to Jewish Christians. And one of the examples that he uses several times throughout the letter is the generation that followed Moses, that would be the, the 12 tribes of Jacob. So Jacob, so we have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 sons, their descendants become the 12 tribes. So they follow Moses out of Egypt. They get to see the, the 10 plagues. Uh, they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. They, they get to see all these miraculous things that God does. They, they go to Mount Sinai. You know, God speaks to them. All these miraculous things happen. And Moses takes the first year to kind of get everybody together, everybody to get organized, and then they're ready. They're going to go into the promised land. Now we look at the book of Numbers. Numbers is kind of another word for a census. Because Numbers starts out and there's a census that's taken just before they're going to go into the promised land. And there's about half a million men of fighting age. The, Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land to kind of see what's going on, what, what they need to do. Obviously, they're going to have to fight battles uh, and throw out the Canaanites. The spies, as you know, come back. Ten of the twelve say, we can't do it. it these people are too strong, and they're giants, you know. What are we, 5'9"? These guys are 9'10", 13 feet tall. We, we can't. We can't win. And so even though the other two spies said, oh, no, no, we can do it. God's sending us in. We'll be okay. So that whole group of people. Now, if there were half a million fighting men, well, we throw in wives, children, and a lot of old people. I mean, we're up three and a half, five million people. That is who Moses is taking out of Egypt, and they're in the desert. So they don't want to go into the promised land at all. And God says, okay, you won't. So for the next 39 years, God has Moses walking these people in a giant circle in the desert for 39 years with the understanding that they are going to die there. And after 40 years, their children, grandchildren, will take their place. And so there's actually another census at the end of Numbers. And once again, it's about 500,000, half a million men. So God says, you don't want to go in, you don't have to go in. But you're going to have to spend another 39 years walking around the desert and eating manna. That's a bad example. And the author of Hebrews uses that over and over to say to them, don't be like that generation that would not go into the promised land. And he makes some conclusions about that. So, all right, what, 
what does that generation have to do with these Jewish Christians here at the time that Hebrews is written? Well, that is where the controversy comes in. Uh, I've seen about five different explanations as to what the point of that bad example is. I'm going to give you two. I believe that the correct interpretation is something like this. And it goes back to something that Paul was telling us. When saved people die, and it's the end of time, as saved people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And their works, while they were saved, will be tested. And he uses a metaphor, fire. Okay, they'll be tested by fire. Uh, if you know anything about metallurgy, you, you heat up the, the, the metal you want to save, and all the impurities are burnt off. That's how you make gold and silver and other things. And we could read through the New Testament, and there's at least five times where we're told in Scripture that you get a gold crown for doing something like evangelism. Uh, another one is, you know, uh, waiting in faith for the return of Christ. Now, at the judgment seat, which is also called the Bema seat of Christ, think of it as sort of like the judges at the Olympics. Somebody gets the gold, somebody gets the silver. Okay. So all of your works, again, metaphorically, are tested by fire. Only the, the gold, the precious metals, the precious stones will, will survive. And those are these, these good things that we are commanded to do. And you get a crown for that. The idea now is you go into heaven and sitting on the throne of God will be Christ. And we and angels will all worship uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And you get to set your crown at his feet. It's like you're bringing him something. Paul says there's going to be some people who have nothing to offer. They will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And again, the metaphor of fire. And the only thing that's going to survive is they're going to have some singed hair. Because everything else that they've done is burnt up and it's referred to as hay, wheat, and stubble. You know, just as, you know, paper burns up in the fire and there's nothing left of it. Paul tells us there will be some saved people who have nothing to show for it. And how does that now relate to the Hebrews that came out of Egypt and to these Jewish Christians? Well, the Hebrews that came out, were they believers when they came out of Egypt and followed Moses? But when the going got tough, they got scared. Did, were they unregenerated? I mean, we like to say Old Testament saints. Did they lose their Old Testament saint status? Well, I think the story about standing in front of the Bema Seat of Christ, I, I suspect these people who came out of Egypt did believe, but then they got scared and didn't, didn't trust God anymore. I, I still think they were regenerated people. The challenge for us, though, is if somehow they lost their place in heaven because of their rebellion in the desert, what does that mean for saved people when they do sinful things or they turn their back on God? C can you lose your salvation? This is what it's coming down to. And so many people who read Hebrews go, oh, oh there it is. 
this shows conclusively that you can lose your salvation because we're comparing what's happening at that time with the, the generation that came out of Egypt. Now, the difficulty when you say something like that is Scripture always interprets Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed. God does not contradict himself because then one of those things would be a lie, and God does not lie. So we, we cannot interpret this story as teaching us as Christians that a saved person can lose their salvation. But that is what some people pull out of this example, and which is why a lot of <laughs> preachers tend to, to stay away from Hebrews. All right, the book, Letter to the Ephesians, I mean, the whole thing is about not losing your salvation, no matter what. So we have to interpret Hebrews to be consistent with other parts of Scripture. Therefore, you can't lose your salvation. And the point to the story that the writer is trying to t explain to these Jewish Christians is, look, you turn your back, whatever good you've done will be burnt up. Yeah, I believe you're all saved, but whatever good things you've done will, will be gone now. So don't do that. You, you've, you've got too much good things you've done, and, and you will get your reward, and you'll take that into heaven and put that at the feet of Christ. All right, so those are the two challenges of Hebrews. Now, the only way we can really look at Hebrews is to start at, as what, at what they say is the 30,000-foot level. So the writer goes from what happened in the Old Covenant and compares it to the New Covenant and why is the New Covenant better. So here we go. Chapter 1. The author says, Jesus is superior to the angels. Now we know in Scripture, the psalmist tells us, you know, what is man that you have made him a little lower than the angels. Yet Jesus, we are told, is superior to the angels. And then he fleshes that out in chapter 1 to point out Jesus is God, <laughs> which is why he's superior to the angels. Jesus is God the Son. You didn't have that when you were in Judaism under the Old Covenant. Then he goes on to chapter 2, and he points out, and Jesus is a man. He's fully God, fully man, one person, pardon me, with two natures. He is the God-man. And that is important because that enables him to be the sacrifice as well, and we get to that. In chapter 3, the author says, Jesus, the Son of God, is even greater than Moses. Moses is, I think, other than our Lord Jesus, I think is one of the most fascinating, interesting human beings in all of human history. Um, if there was no God, but there was Moses, and he wrote all this stuff, I don't know how he could have done it. I mean, it's just incredible, all the things that Moses did. And he is referred to as a servant of God. 
Now, once again, we've got the English impediment here and, and being politically correct. We use a politically correct word, servant, and I'm thinking of Downton Abbey and the butler. But the underlying Greek word here is, is the word we would use for an involuntary slave. So Moses was a slave of God. Arguably, he was the head butler. I mean, he was the best slave of God. But at the end of the day, he was still a slave. So, and once again, where they use metaphors, so the writer says, in God's house, Moses is a slave in God's house. Jesus is God the Son. Obviously, family is greater than the servants or the slaves. I hope when I finish this series, I'm, uh, I'm going to do a series uh, on Moses. And uh, I guarantee you it will be entertaining and hopefully educational and thought-provoking along the way. Now we go into chapters 4 through 7. And the author is telling Jews, Jesus is a high priest who is superior to the Aaronic priest. All right, this would be the descendants of Aaron. So Jesus is a more superior and greater high priest than we had under the Old Testament. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. He appointed his older brother Aaron to be the high priest. Now, in any kind of a system, where you, a religious system, where you have priests, the priest is always the one who stands between people and God. The priest is the one who makes the sacrifice for the people. God uses the priest to convey information and, and things to the people. The high priest is very important in many religious systems. Fortunately, we as the followers of Jesus, evangelicals, we know that every believer is a priest, okay? Because we have a direct relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So how can, so anticipating uh, what the readers might ask, it's like, well, how can Jesus be a superior priest to the priest of Aaron, the Aaronic priest, because he, he isn't from the tribe of Levi. He didn't descend from Aaron. He descended from Judah. Okay, That's the tribe where the kings come from. They don't have any priests coming out of the tribe of Judah. So how can you say he's a superior priest? For that, the writer now goes back into yet another story in the Old Testament. At the time of Father Abraham... Abraham is called the friend of God. Nobody else is, but Abraham is. So he's pretty high up there, right? And it's through Abraham that God is going to establish a great nation and bless all of the nations of the world through this descendant of Abraham. All right, so this is the story of Melchizedek. Abraham and his nephew Lot, they got so wealthy and they had so many flocks uh, and, and 
it was just too much for the land to be able to have this huge family with all of their animals, you know, eating the grass. And so Abraham says to his nephew, okay, look that way, look that way. You pick one way, I'll go the other way. Because it, it's, the land is not big enough for us to be together in these herds. So Lot goes and pitches his tent near uh, the city of Sodom which, of course, was a bad place. And at some point, some banditos, some bad guys, come in. They raid the city of Sodom. They take off a lot of the people, obviously going to sell them into to slavery, and they steal whatever they can of any value, and, and they hightail it out. Someone is able to get away, comes to Abraham. Abraham has got all these hired men. He, he's got several friends, and he gets his friends and his employees and his friends' employees, servants, whatever they are, slaves, and they go after the banditos, and they beat him, and they meet him in battle, and they defeat them. Lot and his family is freed. Everybody gets their, their gold and silver back, and now they're headed back home. And on the way, Coming out of the city of Salem is the king, and it is a guy named Melchizedek. So this city called Salem will, a thousand years later, be called Jerusalem. This is actually Jerusalem, but a thousand years, two thousand years before the time of Christ. So there is a king there who is also a priest. So he's of a different priestly order than the Aaronic priest. Now, here's where it's, who is this guy? They don't give you his background or anything. He comes and he blesses Abraham. Well, you know, the greater always blesses the lesser. So here is Abraham, the friend of God, but it's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham and not vice versa. And then Abraham, in turn, gives a tenth of all the goods they have to this uh, Melchizedek. Kind of sounds like a tithe, doesn't it? So this is a priest-king. We would say Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is both king and priest. Just as Melchizedek was a king-priest, Jesus is a king priest. So the writer can say, so don't worry about those ironic priests. We have a much, Jesus has a much superior priesthood. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there wasn't any official order of Melchizedek and secret handshakes or any of that. He's just saying, Jesus is a superior priest, and, and he's comparing it to the priests of the Old Testament, who are all descended from Aaron. Now we get into chapters 8 through 10. And here's where we start digging down into things that are difficult for some people. I, I've been, you know, doing Bible studies. We'll have, you know, had a lot of international students going to university. And when they start to read about some of these sacrifices, and they're like, what? This is not a PETA-approved kind of an activity here. 
Initially, the sacrificial system is carried out in a tabernacle, which is a portable uh, temple. And later on, a permanent temple is built first by Solomon and then by the people who returned after the Babylonian captivity. And you know what happens at the temple? As long as it's daylight, some animals get in their throat cut. And that's all these priests do all day long is they cut up bulls, they cut up goats, sheep, doves. It's blood and blood and more blood. Scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So the author is saying, you know, in the Old Testament, this sacrificial stuff was going on, but it didn't actually cancel your sin. It it didn't forgive them. It only temporarily, so the shedding of a goat's blood and, and putting the blood on, on the, uh, the, the horns of the altar, uh, it was only temporary. And next year you had to come back and do it again. And priest after priest after priest, you know, every year at Yom Kippur, they, they've got to make these sacrifices for the whole nation. Oh, and then the other part of the problem is these priests of Aaron, the Aaronic priests, they're ordinary people just like you and me, meaning they're sinners. So they first have to uh, atone for their own sin and get a covering for their sin before they can now go in and try to cover for your sin and my sin. And how does that compare to Jesus? Jesus is a high priest who sacrifices himself, the perfect sacrifice, that didn't temporarily cover sin. It completely did away with it. Under the old system, yeah, your sins got covered if they were unintentional sins, but you still felt guilty about it. The sacrifice of Christ He's both the high priest and the perfect sacrifice. He only has to do it once. And it is so perfect that it canceled the sins that happened way in the past. It canceled the sins that were occurring now. And it took the penalty of all the sins in the future, including all of ours. That is the new covenant. And so that sacrifice by that high priest, is better. He goes on in uh, the writer in chapter uh, 9, and, and he's saying, yeah, I know the temple is beautiful. So the temple in Jerusalem, I, I believe they had uh, a gold leaf all on the walls, outside and inside, and it was quite, quite a sight to behold. He says, as beautiful as the temple in Jerusalem is, soon to be was, There is a heavenly temple. There's a temple in heaven. And the earthly temple is only a copy of that heavenly temple. And so the superior priest with a superior sacrifice is in the superior temple. And he he says very strongly, Christ sacrificed once for all. And that goes forward and backward in time. Chapters 11 and 12, the the author 
is now, based on what he has just said, you know, you have such a superior sacrifice, and it's good for all time. And so I'm pleading with you, persevere in the faith. And so chapters 11 and 12, uh, it's a call to persevere in faith and, and, and encouraging them. Chapter 13 is the conclusion of the book. <laughs> uh, many times in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, but obviously here as well, things are put at the end, not as part of the story, but as like an appendix or a supplement. So in chapter 13, there are all these practical rules for Christian living. Think of that not so much as part of the narrative of the story, but a, oh, by the way, here's some good stuff for you. Okay, and so that was like a supplement. So that is the large view of Hebrews, and I'm actually going to read, and I'm going to comment as I go along, but I'm going to read um, chapter 10, and I think the first 18 verses. And again, I will be adding words to make this flow a little bit, or explaining as I go. Chapter 10, verse 1, the law of Moses is only a shadow of the good things that are coming through Christ. The law of Moses is not the reality itself. It's just the foreshadowing. We call this a type, by the way. So just as Melchizedek was a type that foreshadowed Christ, the the same with the law of Moses. Now, he continues, For this reason, the law of Moses can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those Old Testament sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. I believe as we study Scripture, we're going to see that there will be some form of sacrifice in the millennial kingdom, not to do away with our sins, that the penalty, that's already been taken care of. But as here, it's a reminder of sin and how terrible it is. So as a memorial service, we may see that in the millennial kingdom. He goes on to say, the author, but it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Verse 5. Now, <clears throat> here's where it comes in we're quoting some Old Testament prophets, and oftentimes prophecy is given in poetic form. Poetry can be hard to grasp if you're not in that culture, all right? So he, he, we're going to read what the Scripture says. The, the author is now going to try to explain what he thinks it says, and it's, it'll fit together, but just realize poetic form Takes, takes a lot of uh, head-scratching sometimes. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, and he's referring to God the Father, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, the old law of Moses offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said to God the Father, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. So it's written about him in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I have come to do your will, my God. 
All right, verse 8. So now the author is going to restate this in his own words. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law of Moses. Then he said, meaning Jesus, Here I am, I have come to do your will. In, in coming and his death, resurrection, uh, Jesus sets aside the first covenant to give us the new covenant because we've got a new sacrifice. And by that will, to do God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Friends, uh, if you're looking for a memory verse, I, I think 1010 is, is probably a good one here. Um, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now the author continues. Day after day, every priest stands and performs religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, but they can never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God because it was enough. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to, uh, up to us And first the Holy Spirit said, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Christ had sacrificed once for all. The day you got saved, God knew every sin you had committed, all the sins you didn't confess that day, and all the sins you would commit in the future which you didn't even know about. And he chose you. And that sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago means that it is enough. Jesus is on the cross. He was on the cross for, we say, six hours. Uh, the last six hours were about noon till about three in the afternoon, and we are told <laughs> the sun does not shine. So he suffers in darkness the last three hours. And then finally the sun comes back out, and Jesus is about to give up his spirit and to die. And he gives his last statement on the cross, and he says, It is finished. Now, the Greek there is this word tetelestai. So when you finish paying off your mortgage or you finish paying off your credit card, the creditor would write on your, <laughs> on your bill tetelestai, meaning it is finished, the debt has been paid in full. And that is what Jesus says before he died. The suffering that I did on the cross and now dying... I have paid your sin in full. It is finished to Telestai. The sacrificial system is really kind of strange for us. 
I mean, we don't, most of us even butcher our own meat these days, you know. Somebody else does it and we buy it in the supermarket. So all this stuff with blood, you know, we've got to kind of understand that and then make the leap and, and show what Christ did. I, I, I hope this is helpful to you. And remember, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I pray that this story uh, and this presentation about Christ's sacrifice um, will give you, you know, great courage and, and confidence in your faith. It's also helpful uh, to use this when you're talking to someone who says, oh, I backslid and I did some more sin. Uh, did I lose my salvation? No. Christ died once for all. All right, friends, I'm now uh, going to pray over us and I ask you to consider the words of the writer of Hebrews and how this encourages us in our faith. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words and I, I thank you have given us uh, scholars and, and friends to help us to, as we, we go through some of these difficult things. It just blows my mind away to think what Christ did for us one time for all. I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.